Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thank you for joining us today in New Books and Architecture with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. I'm your host, Trisha Keffer, a landscape designer with a master's degree in landscape architecture from sunny Key Largo, Florida. Today's book is Projective Ecologies by Chris Reed and Nina Marie Lister. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the show. Hi, Trisha. How are you? Happy to be here. Uh, thank you. And so can let's start with, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm a landscape architect and an urban designer. have been involved in uh, very public, large-scale, and often complex landscape projects uh, across the U.S., occasionally around the world, for the last 20 years or so. Um, And uh, I also teach at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. I'm a professor of practice there. Um, and very much involved in some of the urban design and urbanism and climate-related initiatives. That sounds fascinating. Uh, So where did you go to school? So I grew up in New Bedford, which is a fishing town an hour south of Boston, um, working class, uh, but I was very much exposed to the environment uh, early on. Um, It was a small city, um, and one very much because of the fishing industry, uh, tied to cycles of the environment. So um, it was an interesting place to grow up because I could be interested in city life and yet city life in relationship to nature and ecology and the environment. Um, I went to undergraduate at Harvard College. I first wanted to be an attorney, I thought, um, and eventually made a transition into design. I was studying actually the history of the American city, um, particularly during the 19th and early 20th centuries, which was essentially the dawn of landscape architecture uh, when Frederick Law Olmsted uh, was at work. Uh, and I became quite interested first in the way large-scale landscape projects really grew out of a social reform movement. Um, the idea that that landscape and parks and park systems could be used to clean up cities, uh, at that time particularly dirty, messy, industrialized cities. Um, but I was also interested in the social agendas that could be packed into a, a landscape project as well, essentially giving access uh, to uh, all of the city's citizens, uh, uh, to places to breathe and roam. And so in this sense, it was a very distinctly American and democratic form uh, of park making, uh, which I found fascinating. I also found fascinating that in many of these cities, particularly that Olmsted and, and some others were working, these new park systems um, were multifunctional on the one hand, so sometimes they dealt with flood control and recreation and transportation and all those sorts of things, but they also shaped um, or gave form to new 
parts of the city. Uh, and they were really urban projects uh, in that sense. And so, you know, my whole introduction to landscape architecture as a discipline was through the eyes of uh, landscape as multifunctional, as operating across large scales, and as something that could positively affect cities, uh, both in terms of their um, uh, both in terms of the social uh, and in terms of their physical form. That's quite distinct from a lot of um, folks who go into landscape architecture and do it through the lens of plants or horticulture or gardening. Um, mine uh, was really through the city. Oh, that's interesting. So um, what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, throughout the 1990s in particular and into the 2000s, um, we started to see a resurgence of landscape architecture um, uh, as a discipline, as a profession, um, as a design discipline, uh, starting to have more influence over um, cities uh, writ large. Um, and at the same time, there was a growing conversation within design practices about ecology um, and environmentalism. Um, and by the time we started to write this, um, the conversations about ecology had evolved, conversations about sustainability had both blossomed and, and um, uh begun to develop. And I think it all reached a point where on the one hand, we um, wanted to step back from what we were seeing going on in the field where landscape and ecology were starting to relate more to one another um, and also trace the roots of this relationship uh, that had developed. Um, now, importantly, I say we because the book was co authored, co-edited with Nina Marie Lister, who by training is an ecologist uh, and a planner. And so uh, on the one hand, the, the idea of a cross-disciplinary team or interdisciplinary team, a landscape architect and urban designer on the one hand and an ecologist and a planner on the other, was really important uh, because we were looking at this as a cross-disciplinary project. Um, and as you look into the book, you see as many articles from ecologists as you do from designers and others, um, design thinkers, uh, grappling with um, uh, the, the meaning um, and implications uh, of the intersections of ecology and design practice. And so uh, it's interesting that to, to us, it was important to us that this really be a cross-disciplinary book um, uh, and that it started to thread lines of thinking to, together, uh, perhaps in more coherent ways. Um, it was also an important moment, this whole transition I'm talking about where landscape architecture was again coming into its own in the 90s. This was quite different um, than the way in which landscape had evolved. So in the 19th century, as I mentioned, when landscape architecture as a discipline 
uh, was really being born, um, the profession, the discipline, the projects were incredibly complex and integrated. Um, you know, as I said, they took on infrastructural roles for stormwater and floodwater. Um, they integrated transportation systems via parkways and carriageways and bikeways. Um, they were often used to clean up uh, dirty parts of cities or dirty sites, uh, sites that needed um, remediation. Um, there were various agendas for recreation, for um, replanting um, nature, uh, social agendas, all embedded within these projects. Um, but what we found over the course of the 20th century is many of these aspects of what was a fuller and complete landscape project uh, began to be pulled out um, in a, the engineering discipline um, or disciplines um, were growing during the 20th century uh, and becoming increasingly technical and specialized. And so oftentimes what you would have is pieces of what had been an integrated project, uh, i.e. the flood control or the stormwater or the transit ways were taken out of um, these more comprehensive projects and given to individual specialists within those fields. Um, and by the mid-century, I would say, mid-20th century, um, you had engineering disciplines rising uh, in terms of um, their uh, influence over uh, decision makers. Um, they made an argument about science and the, the technology that was involved and the complexity and how you really needed to deal with um, engineering first. And what you started to get was highway systems, road systems that were over-designed, over-engineered. You got flood control systems that only did flood control and, frankly, didn't do it very well. It didn't work with natural processes. Uh, you got a whole set of utility systems that were separated. Uh, and landscape architecture uh, at that point in time really became more about garden design. Um, and it had lost this really... Uh, integrated uh, 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 approach and this uh, uh, interwoven complex set of agendas. Um, and that was starting to change. So it, it was starting to change in the 90s, but, but in some ways, I think Ian McCarg's book, Design with Nature, I think that was in 69, was really important uh, because he introduced the idea again that if you begin to study natural systems, you could begin to think and plan and design in concert with those systems rather than uh, simply thinking like an engineer sort of looking to, to control those systems. Um, and then I think there were experimental projects uh, during the 70s and 80s that started to look at uh, the interrelationships between um, design and environmental systems, design and open-ended systems um, uh, that produced in the 90s a resurgence uh, of landscape practice. Uh, first in Europe, particularly in um, uh, Holland, uh, and then throughout the United States. And so we were trying to capture a little bit this trajectory, try to, trying to 
to reflect a little bit on how that happened and the ways in which ecological practices of thinking and research started to intersect with design practices uh, and thinking. And we thought that, you know, right around 2010, 2012, this was a good time to take stock of where we are, think critically about it, uh, and start to project forward in terms of where this project uh, might go. Micah. Uh, so that's true. Landscape architecture, it's not just a, a pretty garden design. It's about all these systems and how uh, we interact with them. So what would be your definition of landscape architecture? So landscape architecture for me is a uh, design discipline rooted uh, in culture um, and one that fully engages uh, environmental processes and forces and uh, material. Um, it's a cultural initiative like architecture and art. Uh, it's some, it's a, a discipline that, that uh, can and should grapple with ideas and projecting um, very strong uh, cultural and artistic ideas of, of what life on the planet could be. Uh, and yet it's a, a discipline that's fully engaged in uh, change um, and uh, ecological forces and, and, and the environment uh, as part of its metier, um, uh, as part of its, its um, it's also one that can have incredible social impact, um, both in terms of the everyday lives and opportunities for people to interact with one another, um, but as uh, projects address cities can also um, address some of the uh, social issues uh, that confront um, our nation, our cities. Uh, um, so it, it, it's a multi-dimensional uh, discipline. Uh, it's incredibly rich. Uh, it it uh, operates at a wide range of scales, um, from the fine grain to the small site and garden, all the way up to the scale of the city, to the scale of the region. And these days, it's really enmeshed in uh, global climate uh, changes. So uh, let's go to the first question. Um, what, is, uh, what is ecological thinking anyway, and how does it relate to landscape architecture? So one of the things we do in the book is look back um, at ecology and various approaches to ecology and thinking about ecology. The book is important um, in terms of recognize ecologies in the plural, not the singular, meaning that there are many different forms of ecology. Ecology isn't singular. It's not one set of ideas. So you can think of landscape ecology, uh, you can think of restoration ecology, their whole uh, ecologists have um, <laughs> a whole series of different uh, subdivisions within uh, 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 ecological research that they're uh, looking at. Uh, 
And so for us, it was important to recognize that we're not talking about one thing, but we're talking about multiple things. Second, um, one of the things, well, one of the areas that we focus on quite specifically is complex adaptive systems, uh, which is a form of ecology um, uh, that grew out of um, some early writings um, by ecologists, um, various ecologists, but was in some ways um, uh, uh, described thoroughly in an article called Ecology of Planning, printed in 1971 by C.S. Holling and M.A. Goldberg. Uh, and this is one of the articles that's reprinted in the book. Here, the ecologists talked about complex adaptive systems. In other words, um, they described not ecology as a steady state, which is how I learned it when I was growing up. Uh, they described ecology as ever-changing and shifting in response to various inputs and circumstances over time. And so in that sense, a successful ecosystem is one that could continue to adapt uh, to change um, and weather disturbance, whether it's through a hurricane or climate shifts or those sorts of things, uh, rather than that one that um, could achieve uh, preordained uh, ideal condition. Um, and so this article is one of the first that importantly links these ideas of complex adaptive systems to planning and management. And these authors argue that if you understand ecology is ever changing, you're going to have to adapt the way you design, plan, engineer, and manage complex systems. Uh, and so that's one of the starting points for um, the conversation, uh, the, the various threads of conversation uh, that are outlined in the book. Um, that's a key one uh, that was um, talked about a lot uh, during the 90s. It's, it's, it's something uh, uh, that Nina Ray Lister was fully enmeshed in doing our own research on. And it's one in which um, a direct relationship with design, designers began to deal with the idea of uh, both changeability uh, and um, um, uh, states of, of uh, uncertainty. Uh, if you will, um, uh, that outcomes aren't fully predicted or controlled, but you could begin to anticipate uh, multiple possible future conditions depending on any set of um, circumstances uh, might arise. And what's interesting in the book, what we're trying to do is then take selections from key uh, papers uh, written about ecology and complex adaptive systems. The Holling and Goldberg one is right. Um, Richard Foreman and his colleagues, Dramstead and Olston, wrote about landscape ecology um, uh, in 1996. Um, Daniel Botkin uh, wrote Discordant Harmonies, uh, a book that I read. This one was published in 1990. Um, Earl Ellis on anthropogenic taxonomies, uh, uh, which was really current work at the time. Uh, Peter Del Tredici 
his pieces on the floor in the future, but he's looking at the ecology of accidental volunteer landscapes within cities. Um, so um, the weeds that grow um, in a really hot parking lot between um, in the cracks of asphalt. This is a radically hotter uh, environment than most, um, uh, say, naturalized uh, systems in a place around Boston. And they support a different set of plant materials. And so he's looking at these adaptive urban ecologies. And so you can see just, just by the, that uh, combination of ecologists that first, you know, they're looking at ecology from different perspectives. But second, many of them are actually working um, close to or alongside designers, planners, or design thinkers, uh, and, and, or at least being read by designers and having influence on the way in which we start to uh, think about uh, designing with natural and ecological systems. So, it sounds like, you know, this is uh, when you were designing, you just really don't know the outcome. And um, there's just so much we don't know about ecology and, and what a healthy ecology is. I think that um, ecologists can talk to the issue of what a healthy ecology might be um, in terms of um, supporting uh, diversity of plant type in terms of supporting diverse fauna. I think with the idea of ecosystems always in a state of change, I think first we need to understand that change will happen. I think second is you can start to think through, if you understand the processes that got us to the condition that we're looking at now, you can start to anticipate um, the ways in which, the various ways in which that ecosystem could change, but you're never quite sure. You're never, you, you, you can't take into account all the variables. And so there may be some kind of disturbance that you didn't anticipate um, that um, uh, redirects that ecosystem in a direction that you hadn't even perceived. Um, that can be terrifying for people, that uncertainty, that sense of uncertainty or, or, or lack of control. And yet, on the other hand, for some of us, it's free. It says, look, we can design the landscape. We can set it up to take any number of forms. Um, uh, and that those forms and that the expression of, of plant material, the expression of that uh, ecology could actually be different at any point in time, and that's okay. Um, so we did an experimental project um, uh, in Massachusetts um, alongside a tidal river uh, and, and essentially created a, a hilly landscape uh, with the idea that if we implanted over that landscape uh, four or five different, um, I wouldn't call them ecosystems, but say plant types, um, 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 salt marsh and um, uh, lowland or wetland species and uh, midland species and species that could tolerate uh, things that were high and dry. 
um, the idea would be as conditions shifted, environmental conditions shifted over time, whether it got hotter or colder or windier, or whether sea level uh, actually rose next to it, the plant communities could reorganize themselves across that site uh, and respond to the environmental changes that were going on. And so for, for me, for many designers, this idea of changeability is really quite exciting uh, and opens up some opportunities um, for thinking about how to engage with these larger scale uh, processes that we can't quite control, um, but that we could productively um, tap into. And that same kind of thinking, if you start to think about the scale of uh, cities and regions, Knowing that, knowing, knowing that you're really setting up conditions for a series of changes that you don't fully control, uh, I think is an honest way uh, to approach the work on the one hand, uh, and yet it's a way that kind of reframes uh, how it is that we start to interact with this environment. Is that kind of like a, what James Corner is talking about um, on his page 60, Practices of the Wild? Um, he's talking about, you know, being imaginative and, you know, just kind of letting the wild um, uh, have its way with through in, in, in your project. And I will point out, I, I'm going to have to interview him sometime. He put it as a coda. So I wonder if he plays a musical instrument because... Yeah. <laughs> not too many people use the word coda and uh, it really struck out about uh, he must play something um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I studied with him uh, I did my graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania uh, with Jim um, and his article Ecology and Landscape as Agents of Creativity uh, which is the article you're citing from um, was seminal in that it was the first time a designer and a theorist took on ecology um, and really um, talked about the potential of ecology um, to be what he calls an agent of creativity, a source for um, cultural creativity and exploration. Um, the wildness um, uh, piece that, that you cite very much um, uh, is in concert with this idea of states of change and states of uncertainty and, and, and the, the sheer fact that things are just simply sometimes beyond the control of the human. Um, and I think he's reveling in that as much as, as, as I am and many others are. It was kind of like just even in design anyway, you design, you hope that people will experience it or use it in a certain manner. And then you find out that people are, are using your design in ways you'd never even thought about. So you don't really have any control anyway. That's absolutely true. And, and, and for me, you know, stepping back from the book, I'm also a practicing landscape architect. Um, that idea that you're really setting up a set of conditions that can then be appropriated, whether it's by ecological systems or by people, um, is really at the heart of a lot of the work that we do. You could call those social ecologies. Um, and we've uh, worked with this idea when we're designing public spaces. 
um, the fact that you can um, structure and design public spaces that allow for change and, and adaptation and appropriation, that they can actually be used for multiple different kinds of uses over time, sometimes special events, other times just day-to-day activities, um, and that people can appropriate them and invent ways to begin to uh, participate in those landscapes uh, and, and really make them their own. Uh, and so you're dead on in terms of making that connection uh, that, that, that in many ways we're setting up the structure and the framework for other things to happen, whether that's purely human uh, or purely environmental or some combination thereof. So in this book, you know, I, I love all this, the ecology, I've done ecology projects, et cetera. And, um, you know, I guess it just always made me thought, you know, can we have it all? Can humans, uh, can we, can we start to live with nature? Are we going to have to, or, um, how are we going to, um, manage nature in such a way to allow unexpected things to happen and still maintain our own health and the health well, Let's just save the humans. Um, the earth will be fine. Um, but uh, how can we have it all? Yeah, it's tricky. And this is where um, the current climate crisis comes into play. Um, it's something we can certainly influence. Science shows us that humans have had a pretty serious effect on environment and climate. And yet it's not something we can control because the forces that are in play are far bigger um, than we are. Um, I do think it's possible to find various ways in which we might live with nature, live with the environment, um, and design with and for it. Uh, I think the set of conditions we're dealing with, uh, or the knowledge that we have, are a bit more complex than when Ian McCard was writing in 1969. Um, but I think there is a, a piece of that thinking. How is it that we uh, can live in ways um, that complement, that amplify uh, productively um, the forces and experiences and phenomena of nature uh, is really important. I mean, it's also important to make it not just, you know, a science project. And that's also where the book comes in. It's, it's, how is it that we connect to the environment, that we connect to the world, um, that in the everyday life of a kid growing up in a tough part of the city, that there are opportunities for them, for that kid to experience um, nature and environmental dynamics uh, in ways that just bring life and joy to their everyday lives. Uh, and so I think I think on the one hand, there's a sort of like imperative that we find ways to do it or else we're going to have a real problem with the way the earth functions for, for us as humans. And on the other hand, we need to bring it home to the everyday experience of people and realize that there's something far beyond the science um, that can uh, play a big role uh, in how we can experience these uh, forces and phenomena on a daily basis. Um, so in another another page, we've got, kind of plays along into this, you've got um, a 
about group psychology, um, et cetera. And it was talking about design labs and um, how our society is structured and how that's affecting our environment. Um, what are the design labs that they're talking about? It's page 296. Let me look that up. Um, Sorry, I give you uh, a little curveball there. No, that's okay. Um, Ian, so the article that you're referring to is Francis Wesley and Catherine McGowan. Um, it's in a section of the book where we started to look forward. Um, so we said, okay, um, if this is the lineage that got us here, and here's the state of um, both ecology and design thinking today, how do we begin to think about ways um, uh, to uh, reinvent the way we think, the, re the way we work um, uh, going forward? Um, and what Wesley and McGowan were interested in here were the way in which uh, these design labs uh, work. Uh, in many ways, they were experimental, um, they were based around the idea of um, complexity theory and systems theory and adaptive systems, but it was a way of working. It was these ideas brought to the business and research environments. Um, and I think this was interesting. This was happening, you know, they talk about it going back to the late 40s and 50s. Um, it's funny how business practices in some ways were ahead of the design disciplines um, in taking on these ideas of complexity and, and adaptation and experimentation. And, and that's what they're starting to describe in terms of the design labs. And they're wondering, are there other forms of uh, interactive, adaptive research that might emerge as we move forward? And so we thought it was quite interesting um, looking through the lens of social sciences and business practices and all that. Um, were there lessons to be learned there? And, and were there, was there thinking that could uh, help propel us forward in terms of the ways in which uh, many of us work? Well, that's true. I've had my own business and um, it is systems thinking. You've got lots of systems running at the same time and you have some control, but again, just kind of like ecology and design, you also don't have a lot of control either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's absolutely true. I'm just, I'm laughing because we're, you know, my own practice is, is constantly changing. It's, it's, it's incredibly dynamic and it does. I mean, it, it truly does respond to different projects, different opportunities and all that kind of stuff. And there are moments where it seems uh, uh, creatively chaotic and productively chaotic and sometimes where it just seems out of control. So, yeah. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> kind of like when a weed stick over your garden is just out of control sometimes, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, but how can you revel in that and find uh, uh, creative ways through and out of that? How can you use those moments to creatively adapt uh, and reformulate and redesign the way in which you work? Oops. Are you there? I am. Oh, okay. sorry. I thought I lost you. Okay. Um, so 
I'm just skipping around a little bit through this book. Something else I thought that was kind of interesting was um, the shape of energy. Um, That's that's so intriguing. Um, How can we map energy and use it in our designs and, and how, or how do you do it or what should we do? How should we think about it? Yeah. So Sean Lally's piece uh, was quite interesting. Um, And so in some ways, He's looking to uh, manifest, visualize, um, use energy and force as a design medium. Um, how is it that you know he's interested in issues of climate and and, and heat and moisture, um, and and thinking about the ways that's a medium uh, for design. Um, and obviously, it's something that's particularly when you're talking about ambient conditions and humidity, right? And, and, and air temperature and the way in which something you do might design, be designed in ways that amplify coolness or heat or dryness or, or humidity, uh, we thought was really intriguing, uh, might open up a set of possibilities. And in fact, there, there are architects who are experimenting with uh, these forces. Philippe Braun in France uh, uh, is one of them. Uh, but his was, Sean's was emergent work at the time. It was really quite creative and he found way, interesting ways to visualize uh, uh, what he was talking about before the projects he, he was imagining uh, uh, were uh, uh, implemented. Um, and so um, I, I think the other part, I talked about the title of the book briefly, uh, the fact that it's projective ecologies, ecologies in the plural. The first word projective is as important, um, and, and Sean's work uh, reminds me of this, um, that you know, in many ways, design is a projective act. We're imagining the future. We're drawing and representing a condition that does not exist yet. Um, but in many ways, so are ecologists. They're projecting. They're creating models. And they're creating drawings and, and three-dimensional models and four-dimensional models of how ecosystems work or how they think ecosystems uh, work. And that is a creative act, right? And I think that's one of the points that we were making. It's something that was brought out uh, by the ecologist Stuart Pickett when we had uh, a conference at Harvard's Graduate School of Design uh, a few years before the book came out. The conference was called Critical Ecologies. um, And it was a conference that laid the foundation for what became the book And Stuart was really interesting at the end of the day after hearing talks um, and discussions between and among ecologists and designers and planners and design thinkers. uh, He reflected that, that perhaps it was this active projection of, of modeling, of imagining things that we can't um, fully, um, um, uh, manifest in our hands um, that that really you, unique uh, that linked 
the work of ecologists and designers. Um, in the same way that we're creating a model or a drawing or a, uh, animation of the, uh, a building or a park or a larger scale landscape that's being flooded by rainwater and stormwater, um, ecologists are modeling the environment. Um, and again, you know, they're using the best information they have, but they're doing it in a way through drawing, through modeling, that's projecting a reality that otherwise does not exist. It's a facsimile of the bigger ecosystem. And so this, this creative act is something that, that, that kind of unites uh, the disciplines. And it's something that we emphasized uh, within the book. So as much as we have a series of essays, um, seminal essays that we republished and new essays that we commissioned, um, the book also has uh, a number of drawings, drawings by ecologists, uh, drawings uh, by designers that really look at dynamics and adaptation and succession um, and, and how we can use drawing to imagine um, uh, these futures. And so um, laced throughout the book, uh, in five sections of curated drawings and commentary um, that help viewers uh, see. Uh, and, and some of the drawings are really just quite beautiful and stunning. They're not, they're certainly not drawings that we did. We only did a few of them, uh, but they're drawings that uh, other ecologists and designers generously allowed us to publish uh, yes, and I want to tell our audience, since they can't see it, is that I really appreciated that, you know, a lot of books, you know, the graphics are, are small and, and they're beautiful, but you can't really read them. But uh, it was nice at the end, you had these, um, everybody, you could have to get the hardbound book, um, the, the nice larger prints of these graphics and uh, just art and being able to read it was really, it's a nice touch. Yeah, being able to see some of the work in large format was really important to us. It's great to look at it in the book. It's another thing to be able to unfold uh, these bigger posters and really kind of um, step into the drawing as well. So thanks. Yeah, that was a great, uh, great opportunity for us. Yeah, it really takes you kind of a, like a little projective journey, and then you get to the end of the book, and you're like, oh, it's a little bonus at the end. A little treat, something to put on the walls of your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I have to do another question. So I, I love the book. It's very cool. So how can I take your book and these essays and really put some of this into real world practice? Is there a, a tool or something, a favorite, something that you have that uh, you found useful? Well, I've found, uh, so just hearing from people, I found uh, that the book is used in a number of different ways. Um, people teaching in the design disciplines and landscape architecture will now use the book as a reference and source book because it, do, it, it does pull together uh, a whole series of seminal essays around this set of topics um, uh, people are using them as readers 
for university and graduate school classes, which I think is great. Um, the second part, which is also great, whether you're a student or a young designer, is, is the, the looking through the drawing collection uh, and seeing the ways in which ideas are represented, uh, very nicely uh, represented, uh, is really important. So how is it that um, as a student of design and representation and drawing, somebody can look at those pieces of the book uh, and begin to be inspired uh, to, to take on their own uh, drawing agendas uh, and exercises. I think more broadly, um, the book really starts to ask bigger questions, uh, not only for the design disciplines and for ecologists, but for all of us who are interested in how we live um, in the world and how we live in relationship to the environment uh, and the climate um, and the ways in which we might think about the implications um, of, of any of the individual essays or the collection uh, as a whole in terms of, of how we take on some of the challenges um, uh, that we're facing. A few of the um, uh, essays um, that are really written by designers, I think are really uh, quite interesting. Jane Wolfe uh, wrote uh, an, an essay about dynamic ecologies and the cultural landscapes that result from them. And she's specifically looking at New Orleans and its relationship to the Mississippi River and the ways in which that might produce a different kind of cultural landscape or urban landscape. Um, than, than other places which aren't so directly um, uh, involved um, with um, such dynamic and large-scale systems. David Fletcher's article, uh, which he called Flood Control Freakology, which I think is um, uh, really fun, he kind of looks at, uh, even in the Los Angeles River, which is largely concrete and is designed purely for flood control, um, he looks at the ecologies that have emerged despite engineers' efforts to kind of erase nature. And he calls these freakologies because they're often weird um, uh, uh, things that, that start to emerge. Um, uh, plants from Africa that take root in the cracks of, of some of the river channel. Um, and the plants wipe from Africa because there are a number of, of nurseries upstream. And when um, seed in a rainstorm goes downstream, um, uh, the seed from the nursery that's imported in African plants suddenly ends up um, growing in the LA River. Um, and so he's 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 finding. Um, these really interesting ways that unexpected conditions can result in some kind of ecology freakish, uh, though it may be. And so I, I think there are many ways you could enter the book and many lessons that you can learn. Uh, I think the most important and the one that, that the book essentially previews is, is the bigger conversation around climate, climate change, and climate adaptation. Um, 
we talk about resilience and adaptability as key principles of complex adaptive systems. They're two of the categories we directly take on in terms of the drawings, uh, the drawing sections of the book. Um, but I think this is where there's some serious import um, to what collectively is in the book. How is it that we grapple with these larger scale environmental changes that are now becoming more and more evident uh, around us uh, every single day? And to that end, it's, it's interesting. We're very happy um, to announce that the second edition of the book will be released this fall. Um, a new printing of the book five years after the fact. And it has a new introduction by climate specialist, Jesse Keenan, currently teaching at Harvard's graduate school of design. And what he does for us is um, recontextualizes the book within contemporary discussions about climate uh, and the great debates that are going on and the real urgency to address some of the issues. And so it's a nice, uh, it's a nice compliment five years later uh, to have the book uh, not only re-released, but repositioned within these uh, very important conversations that are happening today. Uh, well, you took my next question. Uh, so uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, Chris, and I really want to thank you for being here. Um, what, uh, what other projects might you be working on now besides another book? So uh, um, I've actually got another book coming. Uh, it's a book where, where it's quite different than this, but, but takes off on the social aspects uh, of some of what we've been talking about. It's a book called Ms. Ansin which is essentially about how, how, how do we, through our work, um, set the stage um, for um, the social lives, the lives and afterlives of urban landscapes. I'm working with a photographer, Mike Bellamy, who's a um, journalistic photographer. Um, we are depicting eight cities across the U.S. that my firm Stoss is uh, working in. And on the one hand, we're interested in depicting um, the urban life of those places that already exist prior to the work we're doing. Uh, and in some cases, we're showing the urban life, the afterlife of some of the projects that we've uh, executed uh, within those spaces. And so this is a book that's scheduled for release in the fall of 2020. And I'm very excited about that one. Uh, that's that's a that's a that's one project. That's one piece of me uh, at school. Um, I'm working on projects uh, that deal with landscape, urbanism, climate change, and sometimes um, the social and racial inequities uh, that result from that. Uh, I'm doing that through a series of design studios that are interdisciplinary, working with architects, landscape architects, urban designers. And I'm also teaching a seminar in the spring on various forms of landscape practice. Third, um, uh, within the firm, we're taking on a couple of very, very exciting projects. Um, one is right in our backyard um, in Boston, a 90-acre public park and waterfront renovation um, where um, the newly designed park uh, is part of the Mayor of Boston's uh, Climate Resilience Initiatives. 
uh, it will be essentially part of the um, uh, system of uh, landscapes that will protect Boston from rising seas um, and the effects of climate change. It will do so in ways that are designed to work with the environment. And importantly, um, the park will um, be redesigned to offer experiences, opportunities, and activities for a much broader range uh, of Boston's populace. It's a site that sits at the nexus of a number of Boston's poorest and most diverse communities, and we're directly engaging um, them in the planning design of what the park can be. So that's a very exciting uh, project right in our backyard. I'm looking at the wall right now of the big river valley in Edmonton, Alberta, where we're doing a two and a half mile um, set of riverfront trails and destination open spaces uh, along the North Saskatchewan River. Uh, and we're just finishing the first stage, the framework plan stage of the Shoto Greenway in St. Louis, Missouri. 20 mile greenway that connects different parts of, of the center, central city, uh, but very explicitly takes on um, questions of racial and social equity in a city that's seen um, some uh, pretty dramatic uh, events over its uh, recent and up to recent history. And so the way in which, again, landscape can operate um, as part of a larger set of urban systems uh, that deal with environment, uh, that deal with mobility and transportation, and that take on some of the most important social uh, and economic issues of our time. Those three projects in, in, in many ways represent the diversity of work uh, uh, that's uh, active right now at Stones. Well, I'd like to thank you for being here today, Chris. It's been so interesting. Well, listen, thanks for having me, Tricia. It's an absolute pleasure. Happy to talk uh, anytime. Uh, again, I do want to give a shout out to Nina Marie Lister, who was my co-conspirator, co-author, co-editor of the book. Um, uh, she is a practicing academic uh, at Ryerson University in Toronto and has a planning firm called and uh, it's really exciting for me to be able to take on projects with uh, really thoughtful people like her um, because some of the challenges ahead for all of us are going to require um, really integrated and cross-disciplinary thinking. That's true. And again, like I said, uh, thank you for being here today. And we look forward to hearing more about your projects. And again, today, this has been Chris Reed uh, and Nina Marie Lister with Projective Ecologies. The book is published by Harvard Press in 2019. Thank you so much for joining us.